Judges, Judges chapter um, 11, it's on page 212 if you're using that blue Bible. Let me give you a little backstory. We're going to pick up at verse 29. We're looking at one of the judges just as in this reading, and his name is Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. And so his family, his father's kids, his other's father, his father's other kids didn't want to have anything to do with him and ran him out of town, the neighborhood, the village, the city. They ran him out of town and off he goes into the woods and there he becomes something of a gorilla with some military experience. Things are great for everybody else, but Jephthah's out there. And then the Ammonites come and attack the city and they don't have any kind of ability to defend themselves. They don't know what to do. What's the best we can do? Let's go call Jephthah. You already hear the irony of the story. And so they call on Jephthah to come and be their savior, the one whom they had cast out. And I want you to notice, starting at verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah. He had the spirit of the Lord like every other judge before him and after him. The spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and it passed onto Mitzpah of Gilead and from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from a, from a roar to the neighborhood of Minith. Twenty cities, as far and as far as Abel Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with the tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, she had neither he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. You see Jephthah's rash vow. So now we turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, picking up at verse 7 on page 1013. As we continue our series through James, hand and heart, we've been running through all of James, and we just have today and the next Sunday we should be done we're going to read today and look at verses 7 through 11. So just picking up right where we left off last week. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What I've read to you from Judges and what I've read to you from James is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as we ponder patience and steadfastness, may we grow, may we establish our hearts secure in the day when you come to judge the living and the dead. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there. You can see the three points. Yes, I spent quite a bit of time coming up with all those P's for the points. And there's some questions, as I said, at the end there. So, Mr. Sal, S-O-W-E-L-L, Mr. Sal, or Sewell, but he's pronounced it Sal, was a ruling elder at Old Madison Presbyterian Church outside of Canton, Mississippi, I was temporarily a student preacher at that church for about a year and a half. We lived in the parsonage just outside of that old country church. Well, Mr. Sal was a ruling elder there, and he was a farmer. He's one of the few, one of a handful of real, genuine, bona fide farmers that I've known in my life. Most folks now are becoming corporate farmers, but this was a guy who grew up on that soil that was his family's soil and had been farming for generations. And Mr. Sal had weathered many, many a storm, both factually and figuratively. Mr. Sal, by God's goodness, the last time I saw him at the end of the 1990s was standing when I last saw him, and he had uh, stood, as I said, many long days after the storms had rippled through the area. For example, the one storm that comes to mind is that Mr. Sal lost his shirt and he lost his farm In the farm crisis of 1985-86, that big crisis, some of you may remember that, you may have been alive then, right? Farmers lost everything, he lost everything. In fact, we lived in the parsonage, this is how much he lost, we lived in the parsonage outside the church, all the cotton field and cornfield behind us and across the street and up the hill had all been his property, as well as the other cornfields across the street, and the house at the top of the hill had been the house he had built for himself to grow old in, and, and spend the last of his days there when he finally got there. He lost all of his property, all of his family property. He had no property. He, had to, he finally bought a little sliver of land just across the street from his old property. And all of his property he had to rent to farm on. He rented all of it. And every day he would drive out in his tractor or combine to go get to the field to farm. He would always pass the house that he had, been, he had built for himself and his family for years to come. He lost it all. Yet he still remained standing, trusting in the Lord. No wonder, my friends, that James brings farmers in here in this passage as an example of what he is talking about. Now you will recall that James has addressed, those of you who have been following along, you will recall that James just finished addressing three different groups of people who are all part of the disease and not part of the remedy. He addressed the judgmental in chapter 4, 11, and 12. He addressed, then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he addressed the Christian businessmen who thought they could control the outcomes and God was nowhere in their equation. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he addressed the wealthy Christians who were misusing other people to get their wealth. It wasn't the wealth, it was the way the wealth was got. You remember that? Do you remember that? Yes, thank you. Okay, so he's addressed through three groups of people who are part of the disease and not part of the remedy. And so with all of them in mind, with all of them, 
James reminds each and every one that if they continue to pursue their passion-driven, desire-controlled, murderous, covetous ways, then they were the adulterous friends of the world who were enemies of God. And as long as they pursued those approaches, they were the proud whom God opposed. Chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, James moves to the other side of chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. He spent lots of ink talking to three groups who are part of the proud. And now he moves to the, and gives grace to the humble. It's here in these verses, verses 7 through 12, that James is encouraging God-engraced humility by inspiring the believers to be patient as planters, Verses 7 through 9, patient as planters, patient like the prophets, verse 10 and 11, and patient with pledges, verse 12. There's the three points. So patient as planters, verses 7 through 9. And hopefully you've got your Bibles open or you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't need to talk. Because I ain't got nothing to say if it's not about God's word. You, You get what I'm saying? So have your Bibles open. So notice that James, in verse 7 through 9, I tried to emphasize it in my reading, James employs the Greek word macrothumia, which literally is translated long-suffering. Interesting descriptive word, long-suffering. Here it's translated in the English Standard Version as patient and patience. Okay, But it's the idea, some of your translations may still have long-suffering. It's a very fitting, picturesque word. Suffering for a long time and being able to do so with endurance. And here it's translated as patient. He uses it four times in verses 7 through 10. It's a very telling word. Now notice that James draws also, so he uses the word patience four times, but then he also draws on the presence of the Lord and the day of the judgment. Verse 7, 8, and 9. The presence of the Lord and the day of judgment as motivation for that patience. The day of the Lord, or the day of judgment and the presence of the Lord as motivation for that pre, uh, per, patience. Verse 7, 8, and 9. Why is that? Why would you use the day of judgment as motivation for patience? Most of us would like not to hear another sermon about the day of judgment. You know what I mean? Well, it's the assurance, the assurance that the Lord will come. And he will one day set all wrongs to rights that motivates us. It's the assurance that he will return one day and expose all of the deceptive, damning, dominating, destroying behaviors of people and governments and societies. It's the assurance that he will return one day and exonerate the humble who are pursuing the wisdom from above that's first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason without... Uh, uh, impa- uh, impartial and sincere, etc. That's what draws us towards patience. And so James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, notice that the word therefore is in that verse. And what do you know about the word therefore? Whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's therefore. Hey, all right, that was great. It's the best catechism class I've ever had. This is great. Right, and so it draws in verse 6, and hopefully if you were here last week, you will remember something about verse 6 where James, 
is using Jesus' language for the ravaged, righteous Christians, reminding us that Jesus, our Lord, identifies with his battered, bruised people. So let me put six together with seven. You have condemned and murdered a righteous person. That's the language used of Jesus. Condemned and murdered, and he was the righteous one. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore. Do you hear the connection? Be patient, therefore. Why is that so important? Because it reminds us, dear friends, that the judge of the living and the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, knows what it is to be on the losing end of a crooked court and a coarse cross. The judge of heaven and earth knows what it is to be on the losing end of a crooked court and a coarse cross. Does that make sense? That's huge. It's giant. If you've ever been abused or oppressed, that's gospel good news. Jesus knows what it is to be in your shoes. And He's returning. And that oppressor, that abuser will lose. Do you get it? You shouldn't look down all depressed. You should be excited. That's the point. So the Lord knows what it is to be on the losing end of the crooked cord and the coarse cross. Now that knowledge doesn't pacify the pain, but it gives hope. So James then turns to planters, farmers, planters, as an example of this hopeful patience. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Farmers know that the outcomes are not in their hands. Farmers know they can't make the rain come when they want it. Just go to the local truck stop and listen to them all complain about that the rain is never at the right time. Right? Farmers know that they cannot cause the sun to shine. Farmers know that they cannot concoct the perfect environment for the bumper crop. Now, to be sure, farmers do a lot of work, and they do a lot of work preparing the soil, planting the seeds, fighting pests, watering, and all those things. But they're patient because they know they're not in control of the outcomes. Perfect, beautiful example of the patience James is talking about. And so then James goes further and he gives us some guidance on how to be patient as planters. And it's in verse 8, and then the second part is actually in verse 9. So verse 8 and then verse 9, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the, what? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this guidance, as I said, has two parts. Here, verse 8 is the first part. Establish your hearts, secure in the coming of the Lord. Well, how do you establish your hearts? Well, those of you who do carpentry, you have some illustrations, you know, nails, and then grooves in those pieces you're going to put together at the end, and Gorilla Glue. Thank the Lord for Gorilla Glue. It's a big lifesaver, right? But nails and, and, and grooves and Gorilla Glue are an amazing team, better than even SEAL Team 6 that helps to keep and bring the boards together so they can support each other and make things stronger, fixed, and established. For those of you who like to do remodeling, you'll appreciate this. 
Think about in your home, the load-bearing beams in your house. You don't want to take any of those out. What happens if you take those out? Yeah, London Bridge is falling down, falling down. Right? Okay, you got it, right? It all caves in. No, those, those load-bearing beams in your house hold up the roof and keep the structure sound and solid. And so your heart, establish your hearts, your heart the seat of our passions, the seat of our desires, the seat of our longings, the seat of our yearnings, the heart, your heart, can be stabilized and secured by what? Again, verse 8. By our confidence in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Our hearts can be established and stabilized by by the confidence in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That coming is nearby. It doesn't say it's going to be in their lifetime, but it's nearby. Let me take a little side note here for a moment. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that the coming of the Lord, that Jesus' final return will happen in our day, whenever our day was, right? Nowhere do the New Testament writers ever say Jesus will come in our lifetime. They said Jesus might come in our lifetime. Jesus' coming was imminent at any point, but it was never will come in our lifetime. And we need to be, make sure we pay attention to that language because that's the door. That was the door to the house that got cracked open and in came the flood of liberalism. Because if the New Testament writers were saying that Jesus will come back in their day and they were wrong about that, what else can they be wrong about? You get it? That was the door that cracked open and in flooded liberalism. But we do have to recognize the coming of the Lord is always imminent. And that motivates us. Here's another way to put it. Every day is the day just before Jesus returns. Every day is the day just before Jesus returns. That's the way we're supposed to live. That's what James is driving at here. That's how we establish our hearts. Confident that he is returning in any moment. The judge who knows what it is to be on the losing end of a kangaroo court and a coarse cross will come to truly turn all wrongs to rights. Praise the Lord. And so then comes the second part of what James is guiding us with. It is in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing, where? At the door. You know, my friends, why would James bring up grumbling at this point? Well, the tendency is for our tempers to flare up and our patience to fumble when we are stressed and we are anxious. Had a great illustration of this at a dad's and kids camp out just two weekends ago. Right? No surprise. We had a wonderful Friday night around the campfire. Kids were like mobs around the back porch light. <laughs> Right, as we were doing the fire, it was great, good food, we enjoyed it. Then Saturday morning we wake up and Neil cooks a breakfast to die for. You guys need to invite Neil to your house, let him cook out on your campfire. We all ate, we broke our tents down, we shoved them all into the cars and stuff, and then we drove to Elk Mountain down a Wichita Wildlife Refuge to go hike. And if anybody's ever hiked that trail, you know it's about an hour, hour and ten minutes up with stones and everything. Everybody did wonderful, all the kids did good. Even the old people did okay. You know what I'm saying? 
We got all the way to the top. We get up there, and we're up there for 30 minutes. We're styling a profile, and Neil's taking our picture. I'm taking our picture. We're all taking our pictures. And then we come down. And no surprise. The kids are exhausted, and some of them begin to cry and whine and complain. No surprise. They just burned a bazillion calories, and they got little bodies. Did you know that? If I burn a bazillion calories, it doesn't quite affect me the way it does somebody who's six or seven or eight or nine, right? They just burned a bazillion calories. They're thirsty, they're hungry, they're exhausted, their feet are starting to get bruised, and they start complaining. When do you complain the most? Usually it's when we're stressed and anxious. You know what I'm saying? This is why James brings this up right here, right now. Ground down by being on the receiving end, for example, of people, chapter 3, people in the church who the teachers and the taught were spewing out bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, boasting and false to the truth that can grind you down. Being ground down by those who on the receiving end of those who are being judgmental, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, grinds you down. And after a while, you just, you just get thin. And so notice that James brings up chapter 4, 11 and 12 right here in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. When he said, don't be judgmental in chapter 4, look, he's back at it again. He says it again, chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against whom? one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the Lord, the judge, is standing at the door. Notice how James puts it. The Lord Jesus is standing at the door. His hand is on the door latch. Now, at my house, we have a, you know, in the garage is out here, which is where my workshop is, and don't go there if you don't want to ever sniff dust. I mean, I've got all kinds of sawdust in there, right? Got the camper in there. But if I come into the house, I come into the kitchen. There's a door from the garage to the kitchen. I have to be careful about opening it because I'm going to hit somebody. Because, you know what I'm saying? Because there's food over here. Right, so boom, bump somebody. But when I go to the door, I can tell if somebody's actually in the kitchen. I can hear them. I can hear what they're talking about if I'm standing at the door. Let me put it to you a different way. Have you ever, don't, don't answer this, okay? Have you ever talked about somebody behind their back and you found out they were just on the other side of the door and they walk in and you, how'd you feel? Right? That's the kind of picture James is using. Don't grumble and gripe to, about one another, brothers, because Jesus is right there. Judge Jesus is right there on the other side of the door. He's listening to how you're talking about the people he died to save. You get it? That's what James is driving at there. So don't end up sliding into the judgmental trap where you're judging your fellow believers, you're grumbling against them, judging them harshly while you allow yourselves lots of space and latitude and you give yourself lots of grace and none to them and all that stuff. And so be patient as planters by establishing your hearts in the security of Jesus' return. By not grumbling against one another since the Lord Jesus is right there at the door. And by living, knowing every day is the day just before Jesus returns. And then James encourages us to be patient like 
the prophets. And that's verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. Here James now turns to the faithful prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. And interestingly, verse 11, he adds Job to that sacred band of brothers. And so verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, if you've read the prophets, you know, you know that some of them were not the best of examples. You know, think of Jonah. He was not the kind of guy you want to be like, if you know what I mean, right? He's running away from the Lord. He doesn't want to do what God says. He's not a good example, part of the time at least. But overall, their long and short service to the Lord was filled with suffering that they patiently carried. They didn't necessarily carry it quietly. For example, Jeremiah the prophet, he often voiced his frustrations and he often voiced his loss of nerve. But by the grace of God, they held on. And that's why James now says, be patient like the prophets. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 11, behold, we consider them blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Notice there in verse 11, James moves away from the word patience, and he now moves back to the word he had started this letter with, steadfastness. You go back to chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is back to that word. Steadfastness. Being stable. Being sturdy. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Scripture and Jesus wants us to be some of the most stable people in society. Not caught up in every panicky news report even if it is a nuclear holocaust coming, or whatever. To be the steadiest people in society, steadfast. If you don't have any other reason why, just think of Jesus and realize He's the Lord. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Of all the people in the world, in our society, in our neighborhoods, we should be the most steady and stable people. So James is back to that sturdy, stable word, steadfastness. Sturdy and stable, we weather the storms knowing that there is far more to the situation than meets the human eye. Interesting, he brings in Job there, which makes your mind go immediately to Job chapter 1 and 2. Job never knew what was going on behind the scenes. I mean... From everything we can read, Job never knew the bigger story. You do by the grace of God and by the revelation of God. Job never did, and that should slow us down and correct our panickiness to say, you know, there's more to this situation than meets the human eye, and I know one thing. God is sovereign, and nobody can dethrone him.
But also notice that Job, very much like Jeremiah, may have complained to God. He did a lot of it. And he argued his case with God, and he did a lot of that. But he never gave up looking to God for vindication and validation. In fact, if you, some of you were there when I preached that five-part series through Job. Yes, you could do Job in five parts. I did it. And you may remember I kept saying all of Job's friends, the three especially, were all really righteous. They were theologically astute. They were precisionists in their theology to the nth degree, like a scalpel. But not one of them ever talked to God. The only person in Job who talked to God and kept talking to God, no matter how dark it got, was whom? Job. And so at the end, what does God say to Job's three friends? You are wrong. You need to come to my servant Job, let him pray for you, and then you'll be healed, because he did not do wrong. Job's a beautiful example of that steadfastness. doesn't mean we can't be complaining to God, but it's that persistent, never giving up, looking to God for vindication and validation. My friends, that's how you face the trauma. That's how you face the drama of rotten human interactions. You face it, as James says here, trusting in the purpose of the Lord. And in James, the Lord is who? Jesus! Thank you, Hal. In Je- okay, in James, the Lord is, chapter 1, 1, chapter 2, 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice that James says, trusting in the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. Convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ is compassionate and merciful. That, my friends, is how you face the drama and the trauma of rotten human interactions. You don't let the drama and the trauma consume you. Because it's a bottomless pit and it's dark and it's slimy and it's dank and it will eat you alive. You lift up your heads and you look to Jesus confident in his compassion and his steadfast love that endures forever. Especially since the Lord Jesus, the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So be patient like the prophets. And now James turns to a very practical place where we're to be patient with pledges. And that's verse 12. Patience with pledges. I worked hard to stay with P words. Give me some grace here, okay? Patient with pledges. Now we may feel like verse 12 is not very significant. But I want you to notice that James begins verse 12 with a very potently strong statement. What's the, what are the first three words? But above all, as important as it is to be patient like planters, as important as it is to be patient like prophets, you really need to sit up and take notice of what I'm about to say. But above all. And where does he go? He goes to our pledges. He goes to our oaths that we make to people and our vows that we make to God. He goes to our pledges. Now, he's following the words of our Lord Jesus that we read during, before the confession of sin from Matthew chapter 5. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. Unfortunately, some people take this further then. James or Jesus wanted us to take it. 
and will never swear any oaths or vows. But my friends, Paul used oaths all the way through the New Testament letters. Like, for example, Romans 1 verse 9, Philippians 1 verse 8, when he said, God is my witness, that's an oath. That's what you say on the witness stand, very close to that, on the witness stand, or when you're enlisting in the military, so help me God. God is my witness, that's an oath. So neither our Lord Jesus nor James are forbidding all oaths at all times. Rather, James' aim is to assist us, especially in the trying, tumultuous, troubling times, to be a people of our word. James' aim is to assist us, especially in the trying, tumultuous, troubling times, to be a people of our word. To be the kind of people that when we say yes, it is yes, and when we say no, it is no. Not to be word twisters. Not to be deceitful or dishonest in our conversations inside the sacred society with one another and even beyond that. What James's aim is, is that even when we're going through trying tumultuous, troubling times, to exercise simplicity of speech, and when you exercise simplicity of speech, it precludes rashness or rancorousness. It precludes rashness or rancorousness. We're not to be like Jephthah. This is why I read the story about Jephthah. Jephthah, remember, was very rash in his vow to God, which caused him great grief. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of my door, my house, to meet me at the victory, I will sacrifice to you. Jephthah thought to barter with God, to bargain, to earn God's favor. And he already had it. Because back in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Jephthah sounds like one of us, right? You may have the grace of God, but you feel like you've got to bargain with God. Manipulate God. Twist his arm to get him to do it. Okay, look, look, I'll give you 50 candles, votive candles, if you'll just do this. Or I'll, I'll, I'll up my tithe if you will just get me that or take care of that. That's a rash vow. And then we use that with each other sometimes. And when we do that, especially during the trying, tumultuous, troubling times, it becomes something manipulative. Become something manipulative. Who hasn't had that crusty old uncle? Or maybe it's a cousin or whatever. Why, I swear on a stack of Bibles in my Aunt Matilda's grave. And you know, you know at that moment, what should you not do? Believe him. Right? That's a rash oath. We're not to be those kind of people. During the trying, tumultuous, troubling times, James says we're to be patient with faith, confident in our Lord Jesus Christ, patient with our pledges, not trying to massage and manipulate God or God's people. Instead, we're to be the kind of people, especially among one another, whose yes is yes and whose no is no. So my friends, since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James is urging us to be the God-engraced humble. Which means we're to be Jesus' patient people. Patient as planters, patient like prophets, patient with our pledges. Patience, dear friends, is a Christian virtue. And one we must work at. And to dishearten you a lot, 
I find myself less patient the older I get. And so if, I don't pre- if, if I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to me. It's a virtue we have to work toward, especially in the tough times. And we can. We can, by the grace of God. We can establish our hearts in the security of Jesus' return. We can by refraining from grumbling against one another since the Lord Jesus is right here at the door. We can, living, knowing every day is the day just before Jesus returns. We can, by the grace of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we confess to you that we're not very patient. Some of us feel even less patient than we did 20 or 30 years ago. We pray, we cry out to you for help. Help us to practice patience. Thank you for your sacred word, for the word that James wrote that is your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that by the blessing of Christ and the working of your spirit, it is a means of grace to our troubled hearts. And so we pray, help us. Help us to grow with patience and steadfastness, that we would be the sturdiest people in our society, the most stable. We have every reason to be because of you. And now, Lord, as we prepare to move towards the Lord's Supper, draw us ever closer to our Lord Jesus who is just standing right here at the door. Amen.